Our Father, we pray that you would help us hear well in our minds and hear well in our hearts and together change our wills and so we respond. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, connect us all into this, whoever we are, whatever our situation, and do so in ways that are spoken from the front, in conversations that follow, and in the conversation that you have with us through the Holy Spirit applying your words. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now this week and next week are our two last studies in Acts, our motto series for the year, when the whole church has studied one Bible book. What I want to do this week and next is land the plane with key applications from our series. This week, I want us to focus on global mission, and next week on national and local mission. As we have studied Acts, I trust that God has convinced us through his word and by his spirit that Jesus' mission on earth through his church in the power of his spirit is unstoppable. Let me take a moment to define exactly what mission is. In Jesus' own words, Acts 1 and 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, that's the key word, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is mission? Jesus said mission is witnessing to Jesus speaking his gospel. Or in the words of his great commission at the end of Matthew, mission is making disciples or followers of Jesus. And that is what we see the apostles doing throughout the book of Acts. They witness, they speak the gospel, and people become disciples. Every generation in the church, in history, takes up that baton to witness, to speak Jesus' gospel. That is mission. It is the spoken word that leads people to repentance and faith under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It is repentance and faith under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that saves people from eternal hell to eternal glory. The key marker statement through the book of Acts is not the church grew, or the church expanded, but the word of God increased, or witnessing multiplied. Nothing else is mission. Now, that said, there is plenty that supports mission or stands alongside mission, but mission is speaking the gospel. Why is it that that definition is so important? because nothing else other than speaking and responding to the gospel saves people from eternal hell to eternal glory. Giving money is not mission, although it is vital to support mission. Planting a church even is not mission, although it is a great means to mission. Mission is witnessing to Jesus speaking his gospel. And it is local. It works out through local churches. It works out through communities. It is citywide, it is nationwide, and it is global. We often speak in these terms, local mission, national mission, global mission. Mission is to everyone, everywhere, all of the time. But mission, biblically and precisely defined, must be in the end of the day, and in the last analysis, global. For all mission is within God's global vision for mission. It's good to remember that. It's helpful to see our local and our national mission as part of global mission. 
Now, as we have studied Acts, I trust that God has convinced us through his word and by his spirit that Jesus' mission on earth through his church in the power of his spirit is unstoppable. One or two of you have suggested that Acts is quite sameish as you go from chapter to chapter to chapter. And I think it is quite sameish, but it's nuanced and that it encourages us in all sorts of different ways, like that person can really become a believer and we can get over that wall or through that wall and it happened then and it can happen now. It might be sameish, but we are rather sameish too. And I'm not convinced that we are convinced by our actions in the Western world, at least, that we are convinced by what Jesus says, that the mission will break down these walls, break through into their lives. Acts, though, is written in a very powerful and helpful way, as Luke just weaves between different people coming to faith, how when the gospel is pushed back, it moves forward in a different way, how God is at work behind the scenes to arrange stuff, all these coincidences, all sorts of people coming to faith, including the most unlikely, like Saul. So God has convinced us through his word and by his spirit that Jesus' mission on the earth is unstoppable. Yes or no? Now, I think it's right for me to raise that. Has he convinced you? It is a conviction of the mind and a conviction of the heart and a conviction of the will. If it is a conviction of the mind and the heart, it affects the will which changes what we do. What are we going to do with the rest of our lives on earth? That might sound a pretty grandiose thing to say, but I guess it's a good question every month or so to ask. What are we going to do with the rest of our lives on the earth? After all, this is just a breath compared to all eternity. Today I'd like us to consider what we are going to do as a church, Chalmers, with respect to global uh, mission. A number of you are here as visitors today. It's lovely to have you with us. I think some of you for a stag weekend, you're all looking quite safe in one piece, including the groom-to-be, though he has disappeared from sight somewhere. Um, it's lovely to have you. Think about your own church. Think about the local church that you are part of. Now, I mentioned coincidences a moment ago. What do we make of coincidences? Are they God instances or just coincidences? Is God behind them or not? I tend to think he's not when he is. Uh, I don't know what is going on half the time. We can't know for certain. We can't. But there have been a kind of rash of coincidences recently which make me perk up my ears. A number of them around our, I'm going to call him our brother, you know who I mean, who is with us uh, from overseas. A number around our, our brother's visit. And what a blessing his time was with us, wasn't it? What a blessing he was, is. It's funny to think that this week he was standing up here. Last week he was standing up here. This week he's on the other side of the world, underground. And how ably and how helpfully he helped us see what the Lord Jesus is doing in that big part of the world, on the other side of the world. One of the coincidences was last Sunday night. Mark uh, stood up here behind the lectern and he told us about how in the country he is working in, uh, one of the great ways they can witness is in relation to family life and the relationship between children and parents. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm about to preach on that from Ephesians. And thankfully, he said what I had written down. 
But even more striking is that we come as a church off the back of his very impactful visit to this particular passage in Acts today. Another coincidence is it all is arranged. Now, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30, the second half of the chapter that Johnny read, is a passage that is often preached at a global mission service or event. If you type in Antioch and mission to Google, you will find that all sorts of mission organizations use the name Antioch. For example, ACTS, A-C-T-S, is a big mission organization in the U.S. committed to reaching the unreached in the world, and its training culture or training center is called the Antioch Center for Training and Sending the Unreached. Why is Antioch, why is this passage in Acts chapter 11 so significant in relation to global missions? Because the church in Antioch, which is located in modern-day Syria, is the first or was the first international church in the world. It was the church that Paul traveled from on all his missionary journeys. It was the church that Paul traveled back to to report on his missionary journeys. It was the springboard, the catalyst, the hub for worldwide or global mission. The city was founded in 300 BC by the Greeks. By Luke's day, the population at 500,000, that's a big city in the ancient world, was cosmopolitan. There were Greeks, there were Jews, there were people groups from Persia, India, and China. One of the names, Antioch, means, I think, the beautiful land or the beautiful city. Uh, Antioch had another name in antiquity, the Queen of the East. The Queen of the East, the gateway to the East. Where our brother is. And then in 64 AD, Antioch became a Roman province, the capital of Syria, and so its inhabitants included Latins or Romans, Greeks, Jews, Persians, Indians, Chinese, Romans, an international city, an international church, a springboard for global uh, missions. Now let me summarize this part of Acts chapter 11, and really fast, so wake up if you've fallen asleep. Last time, chapter 10 was a description of the interaction between the Apostle Peter, who was a Jew, and Cornelius, a Gentile or non-Jew. And both Peter and Cornelius had visions from God that they were to meet. Peter was told to go and speak the good news to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were told to go and get Peter to speak the good news to them. And they did, and there was a, a crossover, and the Gentiles were converted. And that's a radical, massive, massive step forward in the history of the church the gospel break through the Jew-Gentile barrier. That's as thick a wall and as high as a wall as you can get. You don't understand that. I don't understand that. But back then, people really got that, which is why Luke says it twice. So the first half of chapter 11, he says, is that really true? And the, 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 the church in Jerusalem sent for Peter, and they said, look, what are we hearing? And Peter comes back, and he explains what has happened. And they accept it. Isn't that great? They accept it. They rejoice in the global mission of the gospel. When they heard these things, they fell silent, verse 18. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is a great, great uh, uh, sentence. Johnny read it with a pause before it. 
what a significant statement that is. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. There's a gauge of the genuineness of your conversion. Think of that person, the unlikely person, the grumpy person, the difficult person, the pain in the neck when they become a Christian. Or that country. Or that particular movement. Or that new church plant. Then to them also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. What a clear, emphatic, powerful, wonderful, moving statement. Moving because it includes you and me. We have a very small number of Jewish Christians in Chalmers. Almost all of us are not. We're Gentiles. And we're quite a long way from Jerusalem. I was going to say that Scotland hadn't been invented then. No, that's not quite true. I'm not sure if, well, I don't know what was going on then in Scotland, but there was no gospel. Now, the second half of chapter 11 begins with a reference back to the persecution and scattering of believers after Stephen was martyred. Just read with me verse 19, chapter 11. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen and flick back to chapter 8. So look at Acts eleven nineteen. Those who were scattered because of the persecution over Stephen Back to chapter 8, verse 1. Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the uh, apostles. And, and chapter 8, 9, and 10 talk about how the gospel goes forward into Judea and Samaria that leads eventually to Saul's conversion, and then go back to chapter uh, 11 verse 19 it's the same scattering those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch so it didn't just go to Samaria and Judea it went to Phoenicia Cyprus and Antioch right out there into this city for the east this gateway to the east speaking the word to no one except Jews but there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, there's a picture of how Jesus works. He works there, and at the same time, he works there. And he works there. There are different lines of the gospel running. And of course, in our passage, who does Barnabas bring with him? Saul, Paul, who's been converted off the back of the persecution. Three great movements over one act of persecution. The gospel goes to Judea and Samaria. The gospel goes to Antioch and Saul is converted. God is at work all over the world in ways that we cannot see. Now the church in Jerusalem hears about what has happened. They send Barnabas to Antioch to help establish and grow the church there. Barnabas brings Saul, Paul, to Antioch. Barnabas and Saul spend a year with the church in Antioch uh, teaching the word. 
and there is growth. They taught a great many uh, people. Just uh, look at the description of what they, uh, they did. Uh, verse 25, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called uh, Christians. Now, that's what's going on. Let me give to you four practical applications with respect to this local church, Chalmers and Global Mission. Four simple words. You can see them on the service sheet. Know, go, receive, and partner. Firstly, know. Know what is going on in the world with respect to global mission. It is notable in the passage we read how interested the church in Jerusalem was to know what was going on. A local church like Chalmers, and your local church, if you are part of another church, needs to be focused on its own path, its local mission. But it must never look in and it must never look out only so far. It needs to look out nationally and globally. Every church needs to know. A church like Chalmers needs to know because, as a relatively speaking, resource-rich church, we are in a position not only to know, but maybe to go. What is it that we need to know? That we are living in a period of unprecedented change in global mission. Every generation might say that, but statistically, historically, it is true. Let me quote to you one or two statistics. Um, I don't apologize for statistics. I think it's helpful for us to know how many people there are in the world who don't know Jesus. These are from a book by a man called Mark Knoll, an excellent book called The New Shape of World Christianity. His book is about what has become known as the Global South. The Global South is a term used to describe the astonishing growth of the Christian church in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. The astonishing growth of the church in the global south, alongside the astonishing decline of the church in the west. Here are some facts. At the beginning of the 20th century, 71% of professing Christians in the world lived in Europe. By the end of the 20th, that number has shrunk to 28%, with 43% now living in Latin America and Africa. In 1900, uh, barely um, 100 years ago, Africa had 10 million Christians, 10% of the population. By 2000, the number of Christians in Africa was 360 million, 50% of the population. That is the largest shift in religious affiliation that has ever occurred in human history. There are 17 million baptized members of the Anglican Church in Nigeria compared to 2.8 million in the United States. 
This past Sunday, Noel is writing in 2009, but I'm sure it's still true. This past Sunday, or today, more Anglicans attended church in each of Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda, each of these countries, than did Anglicans in Britain, Canada, and Episcopalians in the US combined. And last statistic, the number of practicing Christians in China is approaching the number in the United States. Today, Sunday, more Christian believers attended church in China than in all of so-called Christian Europe. These are the facts. These are the trends. Massive expansion in other parts of the world. Let me now bust a couple of myths. First myth. And people all over the world are working hard to bust this myth who know far more about this than me. Myth number one, that the global church no longer needs Western missionaries. That is just not true. The global church is facing unprecedented growth and unprecedented and new needs. One of the things our brother said a number of times in his visit, please, Chalmers, will you understand where the needs are in the world? Perhaps the two greatest needs in the global south are these. One, training church leaders of whom there are millions, literally millions, to understand and teach the Bible and to structure and grow the embryonic churches they are leading according to the Word of God. Training leaders who will be able to discern between true and false teaching. Training leaders will release the words in a new wave, a new surge of global evangelism. Training leaders will protect the church as it grows from error and false teaching. Training leaders will prepare the church for more opposition as the church continues to grow. That is what Barnabas and Saul did on day one in Antioch. They went to Antioch, they strengthened the church, they trained the leaders, and then they left, then they stood back. And those of you who heard our brother speak, that is exactly what he and many others are doing in the global south. It is a huge, huge need. I might go occasionally and speak at a conference for ministers of a hundred people who are pretty keen In the global south, there are millions of people who are desperate, desperate for someone to teach them how to teach a book like Acts. So our job is not done in going to the global south. Second myth that we need to, to debunk, to expose... is that the need in the West is now greater and therefore that's where our mission focus should be. 
Let me express that in relation to Chalmers. National mission in Scotland is more important than global mission. 1.5% of the population of Scotland have any meaningful contact with a living church. Scotland is unreached. The task before us is not the revival of the church in Scotland or the UK, it is the re-evangelization. Surely we should pull all our energies into the country where we are. We should pour our energies into national and global mission, both. Scotland may be unreached, but 41.5% of the world is unreached. Still, 7 0.5 billion people are not hearing about Jesus. Now here's another coincidence. We've just appointed a third ministry associate for next session. You'll hear more about him a week on Monday at the church meeting. He is certainly open to long-term ministry in Scotland. But he is equally convicted, and you will be inspired to hear him when he comes, about the possibility of long-term mission overseas in one of these countries that is as yet unreached. Where is the priority? Global mission or national mission? Both. Where is the need? Overseas and here, both. What is real? Let's get real. Some of, some of us will go, most of us will stay. God convicts different people differently. Here's what is not an option, that we are apathetic and not committed to anything. So that's the first application. Know what is going on in the world with respect to global uh, mission. If you've kind of got nothing to do this afternoon, go and look at a website called the Joshua Project. And it's fascinating. It'll just tell you what's going on in the world. And I might just ask you next week if you did. <laughs> Number two, go. Go. I want to be direct here, but super wise. Super wise. If you are fully settled in your heart as a committed Christian, that God wants you here, at least for now, then stay. Stay. Don't feel guilt-tripped into going if God wants you to stay. That's just stupid. Fully settled does not mean comfortable. Fully settled means clear and convicted that this is where God wants you to serve this side of eternity. If you are not fully settled in your heart, what does that mean? It means that people are saying to you, have you thought about going? Have you thought about overseas work? Are you gifted that way? Are you gifted in cross-cultural mission or, or, or ministry? And if your heart is not settled, if you don't think this is where I should be for, for the long term, if that's how you are, then consider going. Consider it. Talk to your leaders. Talk to your church. Don't get on a plane. Talk to people. Be prepared. Be ready to go. And when the time comes, go like Barnabas and encourage believers teaching the Word of God. If you are fully settled in your heart to go, then go. 
if you have gone through a process of thinking and being prepared, then go. At the beginning of the sermon, I described mission as witnessing, speaking the gospel. Of course, that's not for everyone. Not every Christian is gifted in these ways. But there are a whole lot of other opportunities to go and support mission in the world. There's a whole infrastructure. There's like a whole scaffolding in all of these places to support mission, to support witness. When the disciples in Antioch, at the end of our passage, sent relief, practical relief, money and food to their brothers and sisters in Judea, that was not mission. It was the practical expression of Christian love, but it allowed mission to go on. It enabled people to go on witnessing. Now, here's a real live example that I was told on Monday. I was down in London on Monday and heard this from uh, someone, and here is uh, what he said written down in a, in a book, uh, his, uh, his testimony. Let me just read it. Last year, uh, John and I attended a church planning conference in Australia where we heard the story of a young woman, I'll call her Jenny. One evening at Jenny's church in Sydney, a missionary leader announced that he and his family were planning to move to New Zealand to plant a church. That same evening, Jenny announced to her parents that she was going to move with them. Not, I suspect, a kind of spontaneous thing. She'd have been thinking about that for some time. Jenny announced to her parents she was going to move with them. She knew the demands of ministry, and she wanted to support that family with the practicalities of moving and establishing their life in a new city so they could focus on establishing the church. Jenny's decision came with a substantial personal cost, but it was taken in a steady, unruffled way. Her heartful gospel ministry, which enabled her to give joyfully and sacrificially for that particular period of her life, she's now back in Sydney, back in a job, and back with her family. So it's not kind of massively dramatic. It just supports the infrastructure. She was in her 20s. People of that age can go. Jen Wright, Inger Rob, two of our partners, went overseas at that age, and they are still there. We've seen families go with school-age children. You know what's really unhelpful to our families when they go overseas with school-age children? If 20,000 people say to them, why on earth are you doing that with your kids? Not that helpful. What we should be saying is, let me really pray for you. And what about if I come with you and help the kids settle in? A recent trend in global missions is seeing young retired people with energy and ability to go overseas or people retiring early in order to go overseas for one year, two years, three years, or, or perhaps just to support for blocks of time. You might be 10 or 15 listening to this. And God has put a conviction in your young heart. You're too little to go. But the world of mission is full of people who had that nudge when they were 10 or 15. So who will go? I would be very surprised. It's just not logical, really, that no one who is at our services across today will go. Somebody will go. Some people will go. If it encourages you, it might alarm you that enough people have spoken to me in the last period of time to convince me that when my job is done here, 
at Chalmers and I have no plans to go anywhere until I'm of retirement age, then I will go. I think I probably will. To te- as long as I can come back here and for most of the year. But go and teach. Go and teach. It's just logical. No, go, third, receive. Some of you will have uh, read in the last few days a letter from another one of our um, global partners. Let me quote from it. The question which now emerges from local leaders is how to do cross-cultural international missions. A number of churches are already sending out and supporting gospel workers. Local organizations are beginning to emerge seeking to facilitate the recruitment, sending, training and sending of workers Will we be glad to receive people from overseas to help us in the re-evangelization of Scotland? I think so now. And so on your behalf, the elders asked our brother, who is now back in the Global South, if he wants to find a couple of people to send to us, we'd be very glad to welcome them and to enable them to do ministry in the city. Lastly, partner. Gospel partnership is such a powerful thing. The church in Jerusalem partnering with the church in Antioch, sending and receiving according to their needs. A partnership is both ways. And how powerfully we have been reminded of that over the past two weeks. We look forward to A and B and C, and I can't give you their names. Richard, Jen, and Hannah, I can give you their names. And Inger coming to us in the next few months to strengthen our partnership, to build on this impetus of connecting with a global church. It is a church partnership. It is not a partnership with the elders. It is not a partnership with those who have been overseas. It is not a partnership with a global mission group. It is a church partnership. It is a family partnership. It is a head partnership, a heart partnership, a will partnership. It is what the Holy Spirit living in us does to you. It makes you globally minded, globally hearted. It is a praying partnership. Above all else that we can do, we can all do this. Praying with knowledge. It is practical. Practical. Practical partnership as we send out and support gospel partners. Sometimes our yeses need to be valued by our noes. Not everyone can go. Not everyone should go. It is a personal partnership as many of us communicate uh, with them. And so in conclusion, as is our want these days, I want to encourage you to talk to one another about these things. I want you to pray with one another about these things. Those of you who lead small groups, I want you to raise these conversations uh, as prayer times. That our commitment as a church and as individual to global mission might not be less than the gifts, the resources God has given us. Not more either but not less, that we might know, that we might go, that we might receive humbly, 
and that we might partner. Now let's be quiet for a moment and then I'll lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for the coincidence of this passage on this Sunday after our brother's visit. Thank you that we came to that part in Acts which is often used to focus our minds on global missions. Thank you for that church in Antioch, the springboard to gospel expansion. Help us, Lord, as a church family to know better what is happening in the world Enable some of us to go or perhaps take the first steps in the preparatory journey to go. Enable us to receive humbly and gladly people coming from the global south into the west, into beleaguered Europe, beleaguered Scotland. And may our partnerships be fruitful and two-way and strong and prayerful and committed long-term. We pray that none of us, Lord, will feel out of this. We pray that we will be embraced. For Jesus' sake. Amen.